You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Carrie Barrett hosts a great podcast called The Carrie Barrett Show. Carrie, tell listeners what to expect from the big program. We talk about everything from media training and virtual executive presence, tips and tricks, but also mindset, confidence, and how you can leverage those newfound skills. Awesome. And where can people subscribe? You can go to my website, www.carriebarrett.com. You can find the show at marketingpodcast.net, or you can search for The Carrie Barrett Show wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Hey, everyone. You are listening to another episode of the All Things Private Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Cassell. I'm joined today by Tracy Vadakumcheri, a licensed mental health counselor in New York and the owner of The Bad Indian Therapist. And today we are going to talk about imposter syndrome and South Asian um, people and clientele, especially when we're opening up businesses because of the th- narratives and the experiences that people have had and how it impacts you. And I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I follow your Instagram. You put out a lot of great content. And I'm really excited to have this conversation from this perspective because we talk about imposter syndrome on here a lot. And we talk about imposter syndrome a lot on here with people of color, but mainly from the Black and African-American perspective. And I'm really interested to have the South Asian perspective on here as well and your own thoughts on what's happening behind the scenes. Because you mentioned before we started recording um, a little bit about the narratives and the things that come up when you're starting to um, deal with imposter syndrome. So thank you so much for coming on and making the time. I know that we've uh, worked really hard to get you on here. So, Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just want to add that I... I'm a licensed therapist in New York, but I'm also licensed in California and Florida as well. Um, by the way, I love your mug. Is that a Schitt's Creek mug? It is a, sh- well, I try to figure out where the camera is. Yeah, Moira Rose. Oh, it's so funny with all her my, wig. Yeah. My office is like special interest central, which, and I'll be completely honest, I've actually never watched Schitt's Creek. It's my wife's mug. Uh, okay. But in here, you will find a lot of Ted Lasso, New Girl, okay. Bourdain, Lord of the Rings, and all sorts of other special interest stuff. Love that. Love that. So. Tell us a little bit about this topic and why it feels important to talk about. I think it feels important to talk about because I've learned through my work, not as not just as a therapist, but also through my like the process of becoming a therapist in private practice and a business owner that like so much of what it takes to build and maintain a business means chan- like having to challenge an inner narrative that I didn't realize was dormant and was still there of like what it means to not just be a therapist, but also what it means to be a South Asian American therapist, what it means to be a South Asian American woman. Like, I didn't realize this, but I had expectations in myself of what I'm allowed to do and what I'm not allowed to do that were actually getting in the way of my growth in my career and in having a successful private practice. Um, 
I think that if the parallels were so meta, it, I, I learned a lot about myself in the process of having to go through this experience of jumping into private practice full time, then eventually going out of network with insurance, like what actually makes me a good therapist and what doesn't? And what does it mean to be a helpful resource in my community without having to hurt myself in the process? And I say that because a common self-defeating belief that I find a lot of my clients have and that I had is that in order to help somebody, I have to sacrifice my own needs or I have to sacrifice my happiness. And a lot of that, it, it, yeah, you could see, you see that a lot in the South Asian diaspora, like to be helpful, to show that you care, you have to sacrifice, self-sacrifice. And is that true, right? Or is that coming from a scarcity mindset? So I think that to, to answer your question, that has been probably the most important lesson to me in not just the work of becoming a therapist, but also the work of like doing private practice full time. That's a great response. And can you share a little bit about some of the narratives um, going into private practice? And then we'll kind of jump into like becoming a private pay therapist because they're, they both exist and they're a little bit different, right? So what was going through your head when you decided, hey, I'm going to start my private practice? Like what's coming up for you? And tell us a little bit, like set the scene, like were you working at the time or did you go straight out of grad school into private practice? I did not go straight into private practice after grad school, which I actually love because I think it gave me some perspective and I was able to like give back to the local community in some way. Right. And I, for the longest time, I was like, I absolutely will never do private practice. I will not do private practice. That is not my thing. And let me tell you why. It's because when I graduated from teacher's college up at Columbia, I was very much like, okay, I have to prove to my parents that this career was worth it, that it was worth the expense. So I just need to find a job. And I didn't even really know what to look for. My assumption was okay, it's, you know, it's 2017. Mental health is still not as popular as it is now. Like, I just need to know that there's some job security out there and that I can find a job with my degree. Because at the end of the day, regardless of where I was working, I went to Columbia. So I knew that was going to get my foot through the door. And I ended up getting a job at a nonprofit, a called the New York Foundling that provided home-based family therapy for families in Manhattan and Queens. And that was really like my first real introduction into what I call therapist boot camp. And it made me realize that grad school did not prepare me <laughs> for everything. Like you are not just in session with people. You are also planning outside of that and also doing case management, especially in a nonprofit setting. You're doing crisis intervention, especially in a nonprofit setting. Like 
It was so impossible to be on top of notes, be on top of organization, time management. Like I had a panic attack like five months into the job, like legitimate like quarter life crisis. Like I did not know what I was doing. But at some point, I think my mind and my body adjusted. And I was like, oh, this is what therapy actually is. Like, I thought that being a therapist meant sitting in a nice office and asking about your feelings. And actually, that's not always the case. Sometimes it looks like this. Sometimes it looks like going to a family's house in in under like served area and like having to get the family to focus on the main issue while there's so much going around. Right. And that in itself is very challenging. Um, at some point I was like, you know, maybe I want something that was a little bit more like less, I should say less chaotic And I ended up having an eight-month stint at a group practice. And I'm out here thinking like, oh, because I won't be traveling to people's homes, I can see more clients. And if I just do the math, you know, I'll be paid $30 a session. Again, having to... Yeah, it was... What? No, no, no. I did not know that that was actually really low. I thought that was high because I did not know that it was $30 per client hour, not $30 per hour. And again, this was also young Tracy learning her ways of the road in the profession that actually therapists do not see more than four to five clients a day unless they absolutely have to. Yeah. And I had to learn the hard way that, no, you're not actually supposed to see a client every hour. So I was extremely burned out, probably about six months in. Um, The director of the group practice did not advocate for me. So like literally, I think like the first month I made $900. And by the way, no health insurance, no benefits, no nothing. And I think... I think my rent at the time was fourteen hundred a month. It hurts my yeah. soul like listening to this as a group yeah. practice owner who does yeah. not do this stuff to their employees. Yes, I mean, like it's it's insane because I think that, like, especially for a lot of new therapists or like people who are new to the field, they think that's a lot of money. But then you realize, like, oh, like you're not supposed to see a client every hour. On top of that, sometimes life happens. Clients cancel. Clients have to reschedule. So you're your income, your revenue varies from week to week. And then at some point, I think I was seeing like 40 clients a week, 50 clients a week. And I was like, oh, I can't do this. Like, I don't have a life outside my job. Like, I can't sleep. I can't take care of myself. And then after that, I was like, screw private practice. If this is what private practice is, I don't want it. And then I got a job at Rikers Island. I was like, okay, I'm back to the non-for-profit work, but at least I have a stable salary. At least I have benefits. And I probably won't have to be as burned out as I was. And at that point, I was like, I'm never, ever, ever doing private practice ever again. Like, that was horrible. That's what private practice is. I don't want it. But I didn't know that I just had a really shitty great practice owner who didn't advocate for me. I got to jump in on this. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I just want to highlight for everyone listening. Yeah, uh, Tracy, you went from group practice, quitting group practice because the shitty group practice owner, you were underpaid, undervalued, way too overworked, to working at a prison system. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I just want everyone to hear that. Okay. Continue on. <laughs> because my my logic was like I, I also had a friend at the time who had worked with me at the previous nonprofit that I was at. And she said something, she's like, I love feeling needed. I love emergency work. And I was like, okay, I can deal with a crisis if it means that my needs are met. <laughs> so, I mean, logically that makes that's sense. Fine. Yeah, like that makes sense. So I was like, okay, working in Rikers Island in a jail setting, I'm gonna get guys who are like, saying that they're going to die by suicide, they might quote unquote hang up. I can deal with that if I know that, okay, I'm going to have a union job. Right. I'm going to have my health insurance paid for. I got, I'll get paid time off, all that stuff. Right. And it, it's sad because it's, it's sad that that had to be like the resort, right? Like to your point, like group, that group practice was so bad that I went to jail. Like, but that, that's literally how the options are for a lot of therapists who are starting out in their career, especially when you need your hours, Absolutely. like those clinical hours are gold. That's what helps you get your license. And I was very focused on, I need my license. Yep. And which is so unfortunate because I think that's why a lot of group practices operate that way because they know that the clinician needs the hours. So it's almost like predatory in a way because $30 an hour in this field is, is is like criminal and it's you're not the first person to come on here and have a story like this and i've experienced things like this too but it's just it's absolutely ridiculous that that's where a lot of our field is at so okay anyway diverging back so back from so you're in rikers working there you have consistency you have security you know when you're going to get paid and what you're going to get paid you can pay your bills which is certainly helpful to do crisis work because you it's really hard to do crisis work when you're also in crisis um, so from there, where do we go? I think that I learned so much from being at Rikers. I think that it gave me a lot of perspective, but I think there were just so many factors that were also outside of everyone's control at that time. I had started working at Rikers in September, 2019, and I got my license. Finally, I got my license February 26, 2020. And this was great for me because this meant that, okay, my job at Rikers was going to pay me more. I finally qualify for the union. I can get paid time off. And then, boom, COVID happens. And the incarcerated is a protected population, protected in terms of like the, like the vulnerability, right? They, they have to be protected from the vulnerability of COVID-19. So there, there was just a lot at risk, a lot at stake. Nobody knew what was going on. And I think that because of COVID-19, because of the pandemic, there were just so many administrative things that went on that it started affecting my mental health and my ability to feel supported at my work. And then I think that I a couple of things happened. Um, I had been approached by 
another group practice at that time that was going to help me kind of build a caseload part-time and introduce the idea of private practice to me. And I was like, I don't know, like maybe, especially cause I'm working nights at Rikers. I'm like, I would have to work day hours. So I'm not so sure. Um, and then I think I was also at that time, I, I kept getting emails from Alma, um, which is a, another therapy site that was offering to also kind of help me build a caseload as well. And it's kind of like um, when you're starving, when you're hungry, anything looks like a meal, right? Especially if you didn't realize that it was a possibility before. And then when I realized that like, I could actually get paid more to do what I'm doing without having to put myself in a dangerous situation every day. Like I can actually be financially stable and have my needs met without putting myself in dangerous environments every day. Then what am I doing here? Like, why am I here? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like I, I don't get me wrong. My time at Rikers was lovely, but like, I don't want to do this forever. Like I have a life outside my job. And if I know that I could get paid more to be seeing sessions from home, then why would I, why would I be here? Right. And I think that's what kind of kickstarted for me that like, maybe I could do this full time. You may know you're listening to this show along the marketing podcast network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Carrie Barrett hosts a great podcast called The Carrie Barrett Show. Carrie, tell listeners what to expect from the big program. We talk about everything from media training and virtual executive presence, tips and tricks, but also mindset, confidence, and how you can leverage those newfound skills. Awesome. And where can people subscribe? You can go to my website, www.carriebarrett.com. You can find the show at marketingpodcast.net, or you can search for The Carrie Barrett Show wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. Most of you who are listening are probably private or group practice owners. I know how important it is to save money in your business. And I also know how important it is to have live, quality, responsive customer service. That's why we switched our entire group practice from a well-known EHR to Therapy Notes last year. If you're coming from another EHR, Therapy Notes makes the transition incredibly easy importing your demographic data free of charge so you can get going right away. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot.com and Google. Find out what more than 100,000 mental health professionals already know and try Therapy Notes for two months absolutely free. Just go to TherapyNotes.com and enter promo code ATPP. They also have e-prescription software available and included, meaning that you do not have to have separate platforms for your medical billers and your medication management team. This is incredibly helpful, and it makes sure that everything feels streamlined. Go to therapynotes.com and enter promo code ATPP. That's, that's a pretty cool, it's like, I don't know if I want to say it's a pretty cool origin story because I know there's a lot of like shitty moments in there and a lot of struggle. But it, it's an interesting one. So once you go into private practice, and we're talking about your own narratives that are coming up and your own imposter syndrome, what starts surfacing for you when you go out on your own? 
And you say, finally, like, I'm going to put my notice in at Rikers and I'm going to do the thing. I think uncertainty, for sure. Uncertainty. And I was, I think, and this is a reality for a lot of therapists, I think, is that like they do private practice part time. And there was a period where I'm like, okay, you know, I can do this, but I also just want to have something stable on the side. So I did take up a part time job while I was kind of starting out private practice because I was like, you never know what could happen. I don't want, you know, I was traumatized from group practice. So I'm like, I don't want to have a repeat of those eight months in group practice. So let me just get like a stable job on the side. Um, So I think like there was definitely that issue of like certainty, like, is this going to fall out from underneath me? Am I being smart about this? Um, Especially because like, I haven't I didn't really know anyone at the time who was doing that. A lot of the therapist friends that I made were working in a nonprofit setting or were working for another group practice. So like I hadn't really seen like someone yet kind of like go out and do their own thing. So I had a lot of doubts. Um, And I, I, I will say that there was also like other like self-defeating beliefs such as like female therapists who make it in private practice do it because they're married. Like they have the financial support of somebody else. So that's why I need a part-time job because I'm not married. I don't have a partner, you know? And I think that there was another, there was a couple of other self-defeating beliefs. I'm trying to remember what they were, but it was like you... I, I I can't remember if it was about like, I think it may have been about money for sure. Like there's only so much money that you can make, like, or like you got, I, I can't even remember, but like, I just know that there was a lot of self-defeating beliefs around this could fail. Yeah. I think that yeah. I see that so often is, you know, from therapists who are like, I'm leaving this secure, consistent income. I don't love it. I, it doesn't fill me with joy. I want to try this thing, but I'm so scared to do so because it's not guaranteed. And it is a risk. So I think we should be insecure and anxious about the outcome. And then we create these narratives like the phone's never going to ring. Um, nobody's ever going to pay me. Nobody makes money in this business. Um, there's not enough clients to go around for everybody, all of the things that start surfacing when you start kind of stepping out of your comfort zone into that entrepreneurial mindset. And I will say, I think that like, it's easy for me to sit here and say, that's not true because I'm licensed in some of the most populated states where like people tend to be a little bit more open-minded about therapy. Also, I'm licensed in states where my ideal client exists. You know, there's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of South Asian Americans that live in New York, Florida, and California. So it's very easy for me to kind of like say like, you know, those things aren't true. But a lot for for a lot of therapists in like other states that aren't so populated, that might actually be a reality. Um, Yeah, but I think that like sometimes what's true for somebody else might not be true for me. And I think that was, that, that was something that I really had to learn. Like, okay, maybe that's true, but it's not true for me. 
was like mind blowing. That's such a great point that I think that we often overlook. Like, so that is, that's a really good point. And it sounds like that probably was a factor when you moved into a private payroll to think about it in on both sides of the coin with that statement of like, maybe, okay, it is true for some people that it's really hard to attract lots of clients or clients that are ideal. But for me, it's not for these reasons. Like if we look at it in that way or the opposite. Yeah, right. I, I think that, you know, Oh, that thought too, that like, just because it's true for somebody else doesn't mean it has to be true for me, showed up a lot in my work with clients who come from small knit community oriented cultures where like there is a herd mentality. Everyone is supposed to do the same thing. Everyone is supposed to follow life the same way. There are traditions and values you're supposed to uphold. And when you're in these small knit communities, it's very easy to compare yourself and say, well, it worked for her, so I should do what she's doing because that's going to work for me. Or, oh, well, it didn't work out for him, so why do I think it would work for me? You know, like, it's hard to kind of separate that, like, okay, that may have worked out for them, that may have been good for them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the same is true for you. I feel like being a business owner and having to challenge my own negative self-defeating beliefs i learned so much from that that i was able to teach my clients too i thought that was so valuable it's really unbelievably valuable and it sounds like there were a lot of good lessons along the way in in the last couple of years because it sounds like it's only been about two and a half years right now of being in private practice so what about money stuff like culturally what was coming up what was coming up around when I transitioned to private pay? What kind of stuff was coming up for you? Oh, yeah. I think that definitely the like no one's going to pay for this was a big one. Um, I think that like sometimes when we have conversations about race and racial justice, like there is a correlation between race and class. So then I think that a lot of like therapists of color in the field, I think we very much think like, oh, like in order to be like racially just, I have to lower my fee because no one in my community is going to pay that much for therapy. And also taking into account like mental health stigma as well, right? Like they're we're talking about communities that have a lot of stigma because of past experiences, you know, past tra trauma that a lot of these communities have experienced historically. They have a lot of mistrust of healthcare providers, of course, like that. I think that like sometimes these self-defeating beliefs we have as therapists of like, no one's going to pay for this. Like I have to be just and lower my fee. It comes from very real fears and very good reasons, right? Like the reason why these self-defeating beliefs are so hard to challenge is because they come from truth somewhere, right? There is supporting evidence to suggest that these self-defeating beliefs are true. So I was very much like, oh, well, no one's going to pay for this. 
So I can't charge too much if I want to claim that I am a resource to my community. And I think that like, I had to pause and really think about what that actually means because I'm actually making a lot of racist assumptions when I do that. One is that I'm assuming that by serving other South Asian Americans that they, one, don't value therapy, aren't willing to pay for it, and that, two, that they can't afford it. Like, I'm assuming that they're poor or that they can't afford a service that they might want, right? And I had to pause and realize that, like, while there's correlations between race and class, that does not mean that they're necessarily the same thing. And I think also, like we all kind of need to take a step back and really think about what people actually spend their money on. And I think that there's, there was also an assumption that I had that like, if I raise my fee, then I'm only going to get like wealthy clients, which surprisingly was not true. I had clients who were like teachers, social workers, actresses, and I, I was thinking like, oh my God, like they're willing to pay my fee. And I was so shocked. And I realized that people prioritize what they value and that people will pay for what they value too, right? Like we, there are people who oftentimes will pay for things that you would think are outside of their means, outside of their budget. Um, but what they're willing to spend on is none of my business and why I charge what I charge is no one else's business either. Like, I agree that we have a really fucked up healthcare system and I had to realize that all of those things can be true, right? Like we need a better healthcare system. We need the equitable healthcare. We need all these things. And also it's not my job to fix a broken healthcare system. It's my job to be a good therapist. And in order for me to be a good therapist, I have to be able to practice what I preach to my clients. And if I'm not able to sustain my practice, my practice expenses, and take care of myself, then I'm only repeating the same harmful behavior patterns that my clients are doing. And then what can I really teach them? So I think it was, it was, a, it was a come to Jesus moment that like, maybe sometimes it's okay to do the thing that people would disapprove of, right? Like sometimes you kind of have to be the bad guy if it allows you to be a good person for other people, right? Like there are people who are gonna have so many opinions about why I charge what I charge and that's okay. But like, I know that this is what I need to be a good therapist. You just said so many great, great things and so many, it's just really wonderful in like depth oriented conversation to th start thinking about because you're right. I mean, starting with what you just said immediately, like people can say whatever they want about what you charge. I don't know what you charge. I mean, I can easily look it up and you can share it on here if you'd like. But at the end of the day, they don't pay your bills and they don't know what your 
dealing with personally or what you have to take care of personally. They don't talk about your student loan debt that you may have accrued or the cost of living of where you live or the ability to just take care of yourself so you can show up for other people. And I think as therapists, we really like to get in that mindset of like, well, we're supposed to be in this job to just give ourselves away. And I think that is very culturally embedded and rooted in the profession. But when you start challenging those narratives, that's where these questions and this introspection comes up of like, but wait, does it have to be that way? And like, am I just doing something and perpetuating something that is cyclical? Like, yeah, the medical system fucking sucks. And we live in a fucking terrible capitalist society. But that also means like, I can't, I can't get stuck there in that mentality of like, let's just burn it all down all the time because I have to pay my bills. So like all things have to be true to some degree, right? Like we have to be okay with like getting behind making money to, to take care of ourselves because then we can take care of other people. Then right. you can open up a, a pro bono slot or two. Then you can donate more money to causes and charities that you really care about, but you can't do that if you can't keep your own lights on too. And then you can advocate for the communities you serve in other ways, right? Like I realized that like, I'm not going to be able to help every South Asian American client out there either because they can't afford my fee or they don't live in a state that I'm licensed in, or they live in another country, but I am able to provide free resources or low cost resources if I need to, for people who can't access me. Like one of the things that I'm actually working on is a free course on toxic guilt um, that I'll be offering shortly. It's, it's something that I plan to add to my LinkedIn bio, but like, I wouldn't be able to offer this free resource if I wasn't able to pay my bills and take care of all of my other practice expenses, right? Like this is what I need in order to give back. And it's funny because that has also come up in my work, right? So many of my clients are afraid to set boundaries or do the thing that scares them, even if they know it's what would be good for them because they are afraid of being seen as the bad guy. They're afraid of being a bad daughter. They're afraid of being a bad son. And I, we often have to come to the moment that like, sometimes you have to be the bad guy in order to be the good person for the people you care about. Like you have to prioritize. You can't be good to everyone, you know? Yeah, I couldn't say that better myself. I agree a hundred percent. I think it's challenging, you know, in this profession, especially. And then if we start, like you mentioned, like if we start looking at the profession and then we start also thinking about it from a place of identity and multiply marginalized identities and communities, we have to like, you have to start conceptualizing it in that way that you literally just described. And I think it's really crucial because it's really, it's admirable to give back all the time, but it's not realistic. And it's not realistic if you want to take care of yourself and it sounds like you're, you've taken this approach of like, these are the things that I'm modeling. And it's also helpful for your clients to have these things modeled as well. I think there's a lot that we can learn from like therapists who are actively challenging themselves in that way. Like if a therapist, think, if a therapist can do it, then I can do it. Right. I think if she's showing me what it's like to do the scary thing and be vulnerable about it, then why can't I? Yeah. Um, and I, I just want to briefly like go back to like having to like negotiate in my mind that like this is okay for me to do. I had to like 
really stop myself and be like, Tracy, you're not Elon Musk. <laughs> you're not Jeff Bezos. Okay. You're not part of the 1%. You're not like a CEO of like whatever health insurance company. You're not making millions of dollars a year. You're a small business owner. Like small businesses have financial challenges and you are just responding to those financial challenges. And yeah, that, that like, I had to remind myself, like, I'm not being selfish or greedy. <laughs> I love that. And I love that, like, reframe. And I know that that's the logical reframe, right? Because it's like, logically, yeah, of course, I'm not, I'm not a part of the 1%. I'm a small business owner. And I still know that guilt and shame and some, some doubt creeps up emotionally because it's like, but I, I'm a helper, right? Like, I'm a helper. And those are the two things that we juggle constantly as small business owners. And... But I, I love the way you just described that because I think that's so true. Like, I'm not participating in, in the destruction of society because I don't own Amazon. I'm yeah. not trying to, like, send people to, the, to fucking Mars. Like, I'm, I'm literally just out here helping people, and that's all I can do. And right. I also like that you touched on the fact that you can help people in different ways who don't necessarily have either financial access, ability, or geographical accessibility. Because you have a social media presence, I have a social media presence, we all can have social media presences. That's free information, that's free content, those are free resources. Like sometimes podcast episodes, workbooks, social media content, that blog content, this stuff goes a long way. And it can really have that ripple effect when people don't have access to come and sit for 60 minutes of a time. Absolutely, yeah. I think that... You know, this is something that came up for me growing up is that like if I really want to show that I help or care, like if I really want to show my mom or my dad or like people in my family that I really care about them, that means that I would not only go out of my way, but I would drop what I'm doing and that I would give up something to show them their love. And I'm like, why is that a requirement? Like, why can't we have both? Like, Jorge no los dos, you know, like why, why does it mean that? Like you can still show up for people and not hurt yourself in the process. And yeah, that that's like black and white, all or nothing thinking that we're constantly challenging in therapy. Could not have said that better myself. So let me ask you, you know, I know we're getting closer to wrapping up, but you moved to private pay. It sounds mm-hmm. like your business is doing quite well in terms of attracting clients, getting calls, getting inquiries. I just want to highlight that for the people who are listening, saying like, I don't know if that's possible. And I, and I want to just highlight the both and because you did highlight that too. Like it may not be possible, but in this instance, it has been. It, it has been. And I will say that creeping thought still comes up. I'm like, what if this was like, just like, oh, one hit wonder <laughs> what if what if this was just like a, a phase a one thing and then suddenly it drops and i'm always like i think this also speaks to how social media can be unhealthy sometimes i'm like okay well technology is always developing and what if like instagram is not the thing anymore and what if instagram becomes facebook and then like what am i gonna do next you know but i think that everything has worked out well so far any challenges that I had, I was able to get past them. I can continue to get past them. Like it's worked out so far. Who's to say that it can't work out in the future? And I, I think that's huge. 
That's honestly some of the some of the most important advice that I give people when they ask about imposter syndrome, self-doubt, stuff like that is like, look at the evidence, right? Like it's worked out so far. And yeah, the doubt can creep up. The imposter syndrome can come back. The insecurity, the perfectionism can all surface again. But you, you're doing the thing. And I heard you say something that I want to circle back to from the beginning of the episode, which was like, when you started at your community mental health job or your nonprofit, I think, you were having similar thoughts. Like you were overwhelmed and you're like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Then five months in, you're like, this is easy. I just am burnt the fuck out. Like yeah. this is, and that's something that we need to remember even in private practice. Like when you implement something new or on, if you're creating a course or you're creating a podcast or whatever, you're going to have insecurity or gonna experience self-doubt. I want you all to think about like the times where you've done it anyway and just look at the examples like Tracy's saying, like I've done it so far. What evidence do I have that it's all just going to be taken away tomorrow? And I think that's really important because I, I also think like this is a both and situation where a little bit of insecurity, anxiety, self-doubt is good. Like it's good. It's not, it's natural. You just don't want it to dictate how you make decisions and paralyze you from moving forward when you have aspirations and goals to pursue. And I would argue it's what makes you a good therapist, right? Like that's how is you also like not being a narcissist and (laughs) like going into things blindly and taking ridiculous risks, right? Like shows that you're conscious and aware of reality. Absolutely. Uh, I agree 100%. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation and your, your, story and your perspective and i'm just going to continuously think about how you quit a group practice to go work at a prison um (laughs) i'm very thankful that we do not run our group practice in that way down here Uh, but it's yeah that that's going to stick in my mind for sure um any other last second tips advice anything you want to leave the audience with and also please share where they can find more of what you're offering i i I, you you can find more about what I'm offering at thebadindiantherapist.com. I'll be accepting new clients soon. So if you reside in New York, California, or Florida, I'll be accepting new clients this month in September. Um, I am also coming out with a free course on toxic guilt that's still TBD. I'm still filming a lot of the content for it. So stay tuned. And I will say that like, just one last tidbit is that like you are not responsible for other people's hardships, but you are responsible for advocating for your community. So like maybe it's not in the form of self-sacrificing your needs and what you need to be a good therapist, but this is an opportunity to get creative. It's 2023. The field of therapy is changing. Like, There are so many other things that you can be offering to the communities you serve that don't necessarily have to be within the confines of a therapy office. Uh, You got to do what's best for you. I love it. That's, that's the perfect ending point. Thank you so much for coming on and making the time and and sharing all of that great wisdom and, and great advice. So really, really appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Patrick and all things private practice. Everyone listening to All Things Private Practice, new episodes are out every single Saturday on all major platforms and YouTube, like, download, subscribe, and share. We will have all of Tracy's information in the show notes so that you have easy access to 
everything that they've listed, all of their social media handles, um, the website if you are in New York, Florida, or California. And doubt yourself, do it anyway. We'll see you next week. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Carrie Barrett hosts a great podcast called The Carrie Barrett Show. Carrie, tell listeners what to expect from the big program. We talk about everything from media training and virtual executive presence, tips and tricks, but also mindset, confidence, and how you can leverage those newfound skills. Awesome. And where can people subscribe? You can go to my website, www.carriebarrett.com. You can find the show at marketingpodcast.net, or you can search for The Carrie Barrett Show wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.